my perfectionism, which I used to wear as a badge of honor, I think, for the first kind of half century of my life, probably, you know, I'm a perfectionist. And I thought that meant, you know, something really special. I realize it's just cost me incredibly dearly. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I just want to thank you for joining me today for this mission. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Cheryl Garrett. Cheryl, are you ready to join the mission? I am. Thank you for asking me. Yes, I'm excited to learn a little bit more about you and your own journey and what you're doing and, of course, what you've learned. So let me introduce you to the audience. Cheryl is a coach helping creative professionals make their best work while also living their best lives. She was a journalist for more than 30 years, the editor of The Face and The Observer magazines, and has published several books, including Adventures in Wonderland, a history of British nightclubs. Cheryl, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. I think right now it's about legacy. It's about sharing all I've learned by interviewing like hundreds, maybe even thousands of creatives at the top of their game and also working with, you know, some of the world's best photographers, writers, designers in my very lucky magazine career. So I've learned a lot, and I think I wanted to spend this last decade or so of work sharing that and kind of empowering younger creatives to stop them making the same mistakes we all made. Mm. You know, what's interesting about creatives is that when you see the arc of their output, it seems to be like it's a young thing. Like when I think about musicians, as an example, I think about just the volume of amazing work that they put out and then... It's harder to be, you know, unique or creative. I, I don't know. But when I also look at, you know, some other careers, whether that's a writer or a coach like yourself, like you said, you said the last 10 years, the next 10 years, what I was thinking about is how some careers or some areas, you're actually accumulating so much that you can give back. And I don't know if I can explain it, but there's one other thing. I have like a, a friend of mine who's a who's a really good looking model. And I always try to help him to get his money in order because I said, you know, when you turn 28, it's downhill. There's 24 year olds coming up and 19 year olds that are going to knock you out of position. And, you know, you need to, you know, think about what's your next, you know, contribution. But I'm curious how you how you see that with all the creatives that you've worked with. Yeah, I think that's changing. I mean, in music, the genre you're probably thinking about is rock and pop. But, you know, you've got Madonna now, age 60, still making music. You've got the Rolling Stones, who must have a collective age of about 300 now, you know, putting a new album out. So, and other genres, you know, sort of folk music, jazz, you can go on forever anyway. But I think that's changing in pop music. And you have people like... You know, one of my favorites from my youth, the Pet Shop Boys, still putting out amazing music, doing interesting tours. So, and even modeling now, you know, tell Kate Moss and Naomi Campbell their careers are over. So I think it, it is all changing, especially because my generation, the people born in 1960, 61, had a biggish rump going through the population. So things tend to age along with us at the moment. 
But having said that, I think, you know, one of the things about being young in any creative field is you don't know what you don't know. You know, when I look back at myself in my 20s, I really didn't know how dumb I was. Then you get to your late 20s and you start to realize you don't know as much as you thought you did. But there is that kind of arrogance is the wrong word, but that kind of certainty you have when you're young that you already know everything you need to know. You're just blundering about and not really kind of noticing the trail of destruction behind you. (laughs) And there's something really exciting about that. You know, I think if we're talking about risk, we're really good as humans at assessing risk, mm. you know, the risk of doing something. Oh, I could lose my house. Oh, you know, people might laugh at me. Oh, I could make a fool of myself. All of those things you think when you're making creative work. I think you get more risk averse as you get older. But what we don't consider so much is how we're going to feel, you know, at the age of 102, looking back over our lives about the things we didn't do. And that tends to be the deathbed regret. I wish Mm. I'd written that book. I wish I'd sang that song. You know, I wish I'd tried this thing. And it's never too late to start. I am going to say that. You know, I have coached people in their 60s, even their 70s, who've written a first book, who've made the art they wanted to make. And it's never too late to start. It's a good point that the tools and the the ability for the average person to tap into amazing tools, resources, markets, you know, a lot of that stuff wasn't there 20 years ago. And now the ability to to really tap in and, you know, self-publish a book as an example. Exactly that. I mean, you know, old days, you and I would have had to pitch this to a radio show. There's no way there would be a radio show where the host is in Thailand and the guest is in in London. But the technology is available for us to just do that now. So it's about ideas and action now, far more than it is about pitching to gatekeepers. Mm. And the tools are all there to do it fairly Mm. easily, plus tutorials on YouTube to tell you how to do it. So what's the ideal person that comes to you, you know, for your services and your coaching? Like what what situations are they in? Are they thinking? Are they feeling that makes them say, you're the right person for me? Okay, my clients tend to be much more established in their careers. They tend to be already doing the thing or have done the thing. And they're either stuck in some way. You know, they're not necessarily the person going, I'd love to write. They're the author who's really stuck on their seventh book or lost their publishing deal and don't know how to re-kickstart their career. It's those kind of people who come to me. And also success can be really lonely. You know, there are a lot of, we often think that becoming world famous will solve all our problems, but, you know, it just amplifies them in lots of ways. So for some people, I'm a trusted person they can come to, and I'm the person who will go, you're bullshitting yourself right now, Mm. you know. Yeah, because I've got no kind of skin in the game as as their coach. I'm just there to tell them the truth as I see it. I'm not their manager. I'm not their record label. I'm not their publisher. Yeah, it's interesting because there was a guy and his band that wrote an an album about the isolation that they felt relative to their audience and the lack of connection, and it was called the Wall. Yeah. And Roger Waters, you know, a great, you know, writer and Pink Floyd, of course, you know, performing it, but it was about the disconnect. And I think that's something that is really underestimated. I think it's really, really lonely at the top, not because necessarily everybody's coming after you. That's one part of it. But the other part is it's just, it's just not always comfortable 
to share because you don't want to be out in the newspapers about, you know, whatever it is that you've got going on in your life. Let me ask you a question about what you do. What is your style or your methodology or what is it, you know, unique about the way that you engage with your clients? I guess what's unique is I understand their world. You know, I've been on film sets. My husband was a record producer. I know those worlds really, really well. Mm -hmm. So we can talk in that shorthand straight away, whereas a lot of coaches really don't know what it's like to be a Hollywood A-lister or to be struggling with your seventh album or whatever the issue is. But most coaching is the same thing, really. You know, it's the same as journalism. I, I'm very, very nosy. I'm really curious. I like asking questions. I like listening really intently to the answers. And I love hearing people's stories. And as a coach, you're listening for the stories they're telling themselves that might not be true. Mm. You know, those stories, I'm not good enough. I always do this. Everyone's going to laugh at me. Those kind of stories can be changed. And I think as 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 a coach, it's your job to listen out for them and then help them see that maybe something else could also be true and might even be more true. Mm. You know, I do some coaching with family businesses who are trying to make their businesses more sustainable and more profitable in particular. But there's, there was something missing, and I interviewed someone this morning named Kim Addis. And uh, what she does is she does she, she has her clients journal. Yes. And she even developed a software for coaches using journaling as a tool. And I never thought of that, but I really think that that could be a real breakthrough for my own stuff because I felt like there's like – you know, there's just, I want to hear what's in their head. And that's kind of what I just heard you say something about by listening and asking questions, you start to figure out what's in their head. And I'm curious, you know, for most people that see you and work with you, do they already know what their problem is? And it really is a matter of facing, helping them face it and figure out how, okay, how do I deal with this? Or are um, they blind to their, the problem that, that you end up exposing? Well, they know what their problem is, as in they'll come to me going, you know, I am really stuck on this book or this album. But what they don't see is the underlying problem, you know, which is a problem about confidence or taking action or taking risks or worried about what people think of you and people pleasing. So they'll come to me with one problem. And in the end, I'll, you know, we'll end up solving another core problem that's the root of all that. You can go quite deep in a coaching session. And I will say journaling, by the way, is a tool I recommend to all my clients, not necessarily to share with me, but it's a way of hearing your own stories. You know, if you write every morning everything that's going on in your head and all your kind of thoughts and insecurities, you learn an awful lot. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I've never been a journaler. And so I've kind of, you know, I, I'm a note taker and I take notes throughout the day and I have all kinds of stuff. So if you had, if somebody had to look at my journals, it would be, you know, all of the to-dos and all the different notes that I took. But, you know, I'm starting to not now on two people in one day coming to me, it's talking to me about the value of journaling. I think there's, there's a signal. And for the listeners out there and the viewers, are you journaling? And if you're not journaling, you know, maybe it's worth doing a little bit of journaling. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. 
Well, I think, you know, this was a really good question for me. So thank you for answering it, because I went through all the obvious things, you know, investments. I've made some terrible investments over the years, but I've made some really good ones as well. So, you know, and I learned from every bad investment I've ever made. Property, we've been fairly lucky with. So I went through all the obvious sort of things that you can make a mistake with. Training courses, coaches, equipment, you know, I've invested a lot of money in all those things over the years. And sometimes I've invested them in the wrong ones. But I learned something every time. And mostly, especially with coaches, I've never regretted the money I've spent and training and, and courses and learning. Then I looked at time and energy. And that was really revealing. I realized, you know, my perfectionism, which I used to wear as a badge of honor, I think, for the first kind of half century of my life, probably, you know, I'm a perfectionist. And I thought that meant, you know, something really special. I realized it's just cost me incredibly dearly. It stopped me from doing things that might have been fun. You know, it's wasted an awful lot of time over the years and it's got in my way. And I think sometimes, you know, that I was horrified when I read that Facebook had, you know, done is better than perfect on their walls. I thought, you know, how very dare such a big corporation be so sloppy. But I'm now realizing that some, you know, all the best things I've ever made, I just jumped in and started. Mm. started before I was ready, had a go at it, and then improved it as I went along. You know, the ones I overthought, I've never done them. Mm. You know, I must have had over the years a 100 book ideas that I've never written because I couldn't get them perfect and I over-researched them. You know, there was a point when a really major publisher called me and said, we'd love to offer you quite a lot of money for your next nonfiction book. Would you pitch some ideas? By the time I'd honed all those ideas, that editor had actually moved on. You know, he wasn't even working there anymore. And I've done that with prestigious magazines as well. They've said, like, you know, send us three ideas. We'd love you to work for us. By the time I've worked those ideas up, they've moved on. The editor's gone. You know, the magazine's changed direction. And it's absurd, really, especially when I coach people on this, that I hadn't, you know, you're so close to your own stuff, you don't really notice it. Definitely. And I think definitely it's only been the last 10 years I've got out of my own way and started just going, well, I'll make it anyway. What do you think is the source, you know, in your own life or from your own personal experiences, what's that the source or the reason why you engaged perfectionism so, you know, to such a point compared to, you know, some people, they never, they never, that is never an issue for them. Two things. One is I've always had to force myself to notice details because I'm not a details person. And in a magazine, when you're editing a magazine, you have to be. It's a disaster if the page numbers are missing. You know, if the third page of an article comes before the second page and things like that. So you have to force yourself to notice and really care about details and care about the reader's experience and that their eyes are being carried through and that it's all kind of understandable for them on the page. So I guess I've always had to think about that. But to be honest as well, I've always been far too worried about what people think of me, you know. So I've held myself to very high standards to kind of protect myself from that. You know, if I work 10 times harder than anyone else, then no one can criticize me, I guess, is the story I was telling myself. doesn't work, by the way. No matter how hard you work, someone will criticize you. You know, no matter how great your work is, someone's going to hate it because it's not for them. And I, you know, it's taken me a long while to realize that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because when I 
was growing up, I felt pretty inadequate compared to the people I saw around me. And then that started first, I, I didn't know how to handle it. And maybe I, I did kind of negative things or things that maybe hurt myself when I just really didn't know how to handle that. But then eventually I, you know, got into studying and I got into working and I was like, well, I can prove something here. And yeah. so that led me into pushing myself pretty hard to get this education, to get this job, to do well, to get this, to get that. And, you know, as I look, even then I was somewhat aware of what was going on. But as I look back, it was the inadequacy that I was feeling that I thought, okay, this, when I get that, people are going to look at me with respect or they're going to look at me in a different way or whatever that was. And, you know, in some ways it worked because if I channeled it in the right area and I went deeper into a particular topic or subject, or in my case, it was finance, I started to become an expert and people did want to talk to me about that. And so in some ways it worked, but I can say just like you, there was probably a lot of wasted time and just, you know, a huge amount of obsession on certain things that I could have let go and, you know, just had a little bit more fun maybe, or, you know, that type of thing. So what, exactly let me, that. go ahead. And it's not throwing out any standards at all. You know, my aim now is just to try and get, you know, say 1% better over time rather right. than trying to be 100% all the time. In fact, I was the kind of person who would say things like mathematically impossible, like 110%, you know. So it's just not having such high expectations that you can never live up to your own standards. Mm. And also it's disabling. You don't do anything if it has to be perfect because yeah. none of us are perfect first time. Yeah. You know, you listen to the kind of demos that the Beatles got famously got turned down by every record label for. They weren't that great before they went to Hamburg and practiced and practiced. That's the truth of it. We all have to start somewhere. And even, you know, when you're in your 60s like me, there are things I'm learning new every day and I'm going to be terrible at them. And I'm okay mm. with that now. So let's now wrap this up by thinking about a young person who's listening or viewing and they are, they're caught up in the perfectionism, they're driven and it's having its positive and negative effects. What would be one action that you'd recommend that they take to avoid, you know, the negative aspects of getting obsessed with perfectionism? Do it quickly and set constraints on whatever you're trying to do. You know, if you're trying to write something, give yourself an hour to write it. And then put it out in some way, you know, blog it, put it on medium, put it somewhere kind of fairly low risk and do it again the next week and the week after that and the week after that and you'll get better. But if you just sit there rewriting the same thing again and again and again, you'll overwork it and kill the life out of it. And the other thing is just to put your ideas out there when you're young, because your energy and your enthusiasm is so exciting that, mm. you know, just shove your ideas out there and see what happens. Pitch to people you think are way out of your league. Have a go, see what happens, but also make something of your own and put it out in the world because you've got the tools to do that now. It's not just about begging for the gatekeepers. You know, go and sing at an open mic night. Go and write and stick it online. You know, self-publish a book, 
make your own designs and put them up out there. Take photos and put them on Instagram. Make mm. videos and put them on YouTube. You've got that access now. Why not do it and learn on the way? You can always delete the really clunky early ones later. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, great piece of advice. And I think, you know, in business, you you really want to be iterating. It was the old days where you had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars preparing everything and then doing a marketing launch. Now you can tap into the feedback mechanism of the market. Absolutely. So that's, you know, a great. Let's say this all the time to people about their websites. You know, people spend thousands on this perfect website. And it's like, you don't know who your audience are yet. You don't really know what you're doing. Just put a really bad four pager out there and see what people click on, see what resonates. And then you can perfect, you know, as you go along. Mm. But this idea that we're going to have the perfect all singing, all dancing product now is, is really outdated. People expect you to reiterate and improve. Yeah. One of the things I do is I write a a lot of research as an analyst and investment research. And I have a community called Become a Better Investor Community, and we meet every two weeks online. And then I also do presentations and I write stuff. And it's like, it's just like practicing new jokes. Yeah. You've got to bring. So I have a new theme that I've been developing that is that the US is in five wars. And I go through these five wars that they're in. And then I try to explain that this is why the U.S. must defend the dollar. The reason why the U.S. must continue to borrow to fight these wars, including, let's say, a war with the climate, the trillions of dollars that are necessary to do that war. And so last night I brought that material out for the first time to my community and then ask them, you know, what do you think? What do you, what are your thoughts about it? And my communities all around the world, so they can give some, you know, different feedback. And then on Sunday, I'm going to do a a coffee presentation, and it's going to be on video at my coffee business. Actually, I have in Thailand. And then I'm going to turn off the video, and whoever's in the room, then I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to go through some of my new stuff, and it's going to be the next iteration of that. And then next week, I'm going to be presenting that to the best fund managers we have in Thailand. So it's just that iteration process. I think your advice is really, really good. Absolutely. And your audience grows with you. I'm sure the people who see it first, the kind of clumsy version, really enjoy seeing that and enjoy watching it grow and improve. The same as, you know, if you're a band, the people who went to your early gigs really feel like they have ownership of you by the time you've got in the stadiums. And they grow with you. They forgive the mistakes. In fact, they remember the mistakes really fondly because mm. they were there to witness them. And I think that's the thing. We can grow with our audiences. Yeah. Like, do you remember when it first came out? People love that authenticity of you messing up and just Mm. going like, oh, shouldn't have said that. Oh, fluff my line there. I forgot this bit. I need to add it in. People don't mind that anymore. They prefer interacting with a human rather than someone who's super slick and polished. Or certainly my people do. Yeah. Isn't it fun when you go back and listen to some old, old, old version of a particular song by a band that you like, and you realize like they developed the lyrics, the lyrics were different there. And then they developed into a more, you know, a a more smoother lyric, let's say at that time, you know, as, as it went by. And that's what you just see that development process. And to be a follower of a band and find like that one song where they, you know, yeah. 
or that, you know, you mentioned the Beatles and they, they've been putting out so many little short clips of them in the studio. And they were, I forgot the, the song that it, that, that it was, but, you know, one of their many beautiful songs and, you know, the, the final word was, you know, some very nice wording, but John Lennon was saying, just say any word, just say any word like pomegranate. Exactly <laughs> you know? that. And so, yeah, that, that's the creative process. All right. So let's talk about, I, I always ask my guests if they have a resource that they'd recommend. And I know you've got something interesting. So maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, I have a free 10 day course, just giving you the, the outline of how to set up a creative business and how to grow a creative business. And it's relevant if you're just starting out, but it's also relevant if you're more established to just go over and give your business a health check. I think a lot of creatives, for instance, don't think about marketing enough and about just reaching out and connecting with their audience. So that's available via my website yep. and you can sign up for that. And it's just 10 emails, 10 days. And if anyone has questions they want to ask me, they're really welcome to email me, you know, mm -hmm. just there's a form on my site or just email me at Cheryl at the Perfect. And I'll have links to all that in the show notes, including the link to that course. So appreciate that. My last question for you is, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Finish the book. I've been um, running my perfectionist streak on a little bit too much. So I've given myself constraints. I am going to have it finished by 31st of December this year. And ready or not, it's going to be published next March. It's called Making It, 10 Steps to Growing Your Creative Business. And you can hold me to that. <laughs> Exciting. Well, I look forward to it. So that. Make sure that you send me the link too once you get it out. And I'm going to put it up on the on the show notes too at that time. So I will. Thank you listen, for having me. Yeah, it listeners. Yeah, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Cheryl, I want to thank you again for joining the mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just do it. That's what I have to say. Perfect. 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 And for the audience, if you go back and listen to my episodes one to 50, you'll hear a very different person speaking. I just did it. I followed that exact thing that Cheryl's saying. So that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.